On About Books, we delve into the latest news about the publishing industry with interesting insider interviews with publishing industry experts. We'll also give you updates on current nonfiction authors and books, the latest book reviews, and we'll talk about the current nonfiction books featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, in this edition of About Books, we'll look at the book publishing industry, how a book goes from concept to shelf, and why some experts believe it's in need of an upgrade. But first, here's some of the latest news from the world of books. Well, controversies over book bans in public schools continue to make news this summer. One of the latest focuses on the Escambia County Public School District in Florida along with permanently removing about a dozen books from school libraries the school district also temporarily limited access to other books amid requests for review the nation's largest publisher penguin random house along with the free speech group pen america and several authors sued the school board in federal court in northern florida Now, the plaintiffs say that the school board violated the First Amendment as well as the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. They did this, according to the lawsuit, by restricting students' access to certain books focused on race, racism, and LGBTQ identity. Now, the Pensacola News Journal reported that many of these requests for review came from only one county high school language arts teacher, who challenged over 100 books in Escambia County School Libraries for what she called questionable content. Among the books permanently removed by the school board were George Johnson's All Boys Aren't Blue and the children's book and Tango Makes Three. Meanwhile, the Washington, D.C.-based Heritage Foundation weighed in on the banned books debate. They argued that PEN America drastically overstates the number of book bans across the country. Now, according to PEN America's Banned Book Index, there were over 2,500 book bans in the last couple of years. But Heritage Research Fellow Jay Green found that nearly 75% of the books on that list were still available in school and public library card catalogs. Now, PEN America notes on its website that it applies the term book ban to a range of restrictions on a book, including temporary removals. But the Heritage Foundation's Jay Green said that PEN America has twisted the meaning of the word ban. 
Determining what books are age-appropriate and educationally valuable for school libraries is inherently contentious, Green tweeted. Manufacturing a book-banning crisis where none exists only serves to undermine that already difficult but necessary process. And now on About Books, a focus on the supply chain that keeps the publishing industry running. We recently sat down with Brian O'Leary, the executive director of the Book Industry Study Group, to talk about his organization's push to make the book industry supply chain more efficient. So Brian O'Leary, what exactly is the Book Industry Study Group? So we're a multi-company association that tries to solve problems that affect two or more parts of the book industry. Uh, in many ways, we uh, set standards and best practices for the industry and try to make things work uh, as well as they can behind the scenes. Uh, I refer to us more colloquially as the plumbers of the book business, the folks who kind of maintain the infrastructure for how book publishing works. Uh, it's all behind the scenes, but as, as you know, probably from your own life experience, no one cares about plumbing until something goes wrong. And then that's pretty much all you care about. So who are your clients? Who would hire you? Well, we don't typically get hired as much as we are a membership association. So uh, we, we're made up of publishers, uh, many of the ones that you're probably most familiar with uh, on Book TV, uh, Penguin Random House, Diamond Schuster, HarperCollins, um, and, and all the big five and probably about uh, 40 more, uh, as well as distributors, retailers, libraries, and um uh, manufacturers, the printers and paper suppliers for the book business. In a recent article in Publishers Weekly, Mr. O'Leary, you referred to the book industry as an old house. What did you mean by that? <laughs> well, uh, if you've, you, I think most people, uh, hopefully, uh, who are listening today have, have owned an older house, and they know that it's, it's always in need of some work. It never really ends. Um, so, the book publishing business was kind of built in the United States between the 1940s and the 1980s. It grew into a fairly significant business for the U.S., but still the largest book publishing market in the world. Um, but a lot of our decisions about uh, infrastructure were kind of built when books were only physical. Um, and as everybody knows now, they're not just digital, but also audio and digital form and a variety of other formats. Um, but books are only digital and distribution was largely digital. Um, a lot of the standards were also built before there was a uh, significant online sales. It's now more than half of all sales of books occur in some way, shape, or form online. Um, and so the things that we do and have done over the last 50 years have evolved uh, in terms of markets, channels, and other ways. But the way that we still provide physical copies and digital copies of books kind of emulates decisions that were made in the 1970s and the 1980s, and they need an upgrade. So what are some of the top inefficiencies, in your view, in the book supply chain? Sure. So, I mean, some of this is inside baseball, but that's why you have a show, right? um, I think part of the uh, challenge that we all face in the book business is trying to figure out how to do things in new and different ways. So if you wanted to, for example, test the price of a a book, Uh, suppose you had a new book coming out in a series, and the author's prior books, you know, you wanted to at least provide a price incentive so that folks who had not picked up the series earlier might try buying those books. It's really hard to orchestrate that easily across the supply chain. 
Um, there's no way to communicate it through metadata, which is the information about a book. Um, the other things that are um, kind of also behind the scenes, sales reporting is largely manual. Uh, there's a lot of provision from retailers back to publishers, and sometimes they're intermediaries. Um, that requires interpretation and reformatting and the like. It's hard to actually know uh, in real time how, how well a book is doing. You can see the sales data, and I'm sure you, you had a chance to report on an occasion. But that sales data is not the entire market, nor is it uh, on a day-by-day basis. Week by week is the best that you can do. And you write in your Publishers Weekly article that, quote, there's no real-time data on how many books are printed each year, where they are printed, or the rate of returns by book type. Yep, that's exactly true. And it's it's a little bit of a challenge for us because uh, that information wasn't important in 1975. Uh, it's becoming increasingly important now. Uh, book publishing has evolved to become a global trade. Um, and so if we just take the printing piece as an example, um, the the, the challenge that we face is that we, it's important for the, both for paper capacity and printing capacity to know what relative demand would be for book publishing or book printing in this case in the U.S. market. But we don't have either uh, backwards data that says here's how many units were printed in 2022 or current data in 2023 and pre- beyond for what we expected demand is. That sometimes leads to uh, uh, shortages in capacity because we haven't invested appropriately. And other times it leads to an abundance of capacity that uh, printers then are struggling to uh, fill and, and in, in some cases survive. As a result, there's been a, a fair amount of consolidation in the printing sector in the U.S. market. So, Brian O'Leary, when a publisher gets a book uh, ready for publishing and they say, okay, we want to print 20,000 copies of this book, how do they come up with that number? <laughs> well, every publisher has its own story. Um, some of it is based upon uh, early reports of demand in the industry. So uh, larger publishers typically have a sales force that, that either goes directly to accounts uh, or tries to aggregate orders across some of the smaller accounts. Uh, other medium and smaller size publishers have access to a network of folks who work part-time on behalf of those publishers, uh, representing multiple publishers with a list. Um, they aggregate those orders. They also make uh, some informed decisions about what they think the book might be able to do beyond the, the initial orders. So uh, if they really do believe in, in the strength of the book, particularly if they're expecting to put a lot of marketing money behind it, um, they may increase that order. Um, the technologies, though, are, have evolved to the point where we can actually print smaller quantities more cost-effectively than we used to. It, it used to be that uh, a run of 3,000 was a relatively expensive run. Um, now that's a much more common print order for uh, a first printing. There are certainly many exceptions. The books that you would typically profile um, on book TV are going to be uh, more often than not bigger. They're going to have runs of 20,000 or more. But uh, the vast majority of books that sell in the United States are in the range of 3,000 copies. And so uh, some publishers are making uh, decisions to print the smaller quantity stock less inventory, see how the book does, and then go back to press quickly if they can, uh, if the book succeeds or does more, does better than they might have initially projected. 
can a publisher and everyone along the supply chain line make money on a 3,000 book print run? Sure. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it, a part of it is a function of price and, uh, you know, books as, as hardcover are relatively uh, higher price. I think everybody would like, if you're a consumer, you'd like to see the book price be lower than it is right now. Um, but I think and publishers would like to see it be higher. But uh, something that sells for between uh, $25 and $30 hardcover uh, has enough margin to be able to make money. Uh, it, if you've given an author a significant advance or if the book is particularly technically complicated, which is unusual, but, you know, with a lot of inserts or color, et cetera, that may be more of a challenge. But uh, the reality is that you can make money at 3000 um, it's uh, you. Uh, book publishers would always like to see a, an author whose initial run of, uh, sales at three thousand to grow over time, and for the backlist to be um, in demand as they become more popular for other books. But the reality is that some books are small, and they they uh, they can still make money. When it comes to ordering the printing of a book, Mister O'Leary, how is that process done? Uh, that's actually one of the things that I alluded to in uh, the article that I wrote for Publishers Weekly. They, it's a manual process. Uh, there's not. Uh, we currently have a fairly sophisticated model for sell- sending metadata, which is the information about a book, to the balance of the supply chain. But it's not. It's not extended fundamentally to manufacturing at this point. So each manufacturer has some sort of input system uh, that publishers have to adapt to. One of the standards we're working on is to try and capture that information in a in a common format, at least for on-demand or short-run printing, and be able to communicate that through metadata to to the industry. That's really useful when you need to move an order. So sometimes publishers uh, are looking for a reprint, but a particular printer, the one maybe the one that did the first run, or the regular printer is not uh, doesn't have the capacity to meet demand it would be nice to be able to easily take an order and move it. Um, that's currently a fairly big deal. Um, and uh, we, we think we have uh, both standards and some best practices for communication that could help change that. But to make anything like that work, you have to get publishers, um, printers, manufacturers, in some cases paper suppliers, on all on the same page about how the information is going to be communicated and how, you, how it will be acknowledged and acted on. So that's part of what the, the work that we do. So when you have a blockbuster bestseller such as one of Michelle Obama's books, how right. do you schedule the print, the printing of that book, the paper supply? You would sub- get that all done ahead of time, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's absolutely the case. I mean, one of the wonderful things about um, uh, Michelle Obama's book is that it did fantastically well and was expected to do quite well. Um, it, it wound up doing even better than expected and went back to press several times. But you're exactly right that the the beginning of the process started with the notion that it was going to sell literally millions of copies, which is, as I said a moment ago, is relatively unusual in the book business. It's good news, and it does help sustain the mid-list and the, and the smaller backlist sales uh, throughout. But the um, um, production departments in, in uh, major publishing houses that typically get those books um, schedule both the capacity and uh, and order the paper if they order it directly uh, well months in advance the lead times generally for announcing a book are about six months earlier than a book actually being published 
So it shows up on a list at least six months before with some core information that might include page count and um, uh, not necessarily order quantity, but at the very least, uh, the core information about the size and trim of a book, et cetera. Uh, so most production departments are able to move as many as six months ahead of time. A lot of things change between six months and date of publication. Um, so they're always kind of amending their orders and updating and sometimes shrinking, but uh, oftentimes growing the, the order. Um, but th- those are regular parts of the job and uh, people are pretty well set up for it. Brian O'Leary, are so-called instant books easier to do these days because of technology? They are. Um, and it's on two ends of the process. One one thing that's interesting is going back to the <clears throat> early 1990s and the the rise of desktop publishing is that it's it's much easier to essentially create and format a book quickly, much as it has been for uh, the periodical, for the magazine, and newspaper businesses. Um, so that that helps a lot on the front end um, it, for books that that you you anticipate ordering. Uh, larger quantities, you may still do them using traditional printing processes, but t- typically what publishers are encouraged to do is to um, plan for demand, not tied to a specific book necessarily, but to know that you have capacity available to produce so many copies of six by nine format, for example, um, in this in this particular month. Um, if you have that capacity reserved, as many publishers have, have learned to do, then you have the ability to just put a book in. It could be backlist uh, and something that you know you had planned anyway, but it also could be um, a, a quick turnaround book uh, like like the one that you have in mind. Are most self are most self published books printed on demand now? They are um, largely through one or a couple of the the large providers, but the, there are a number of different on demand um, services that you can use. Um, the, the thing there is that uh, the, one of the hard things about self-publishing is that if you produce a large quantity up front, even if it were a thousand or two thousand or three thousand copies, you know, so a relatively average one for traditional publisher, you have to pay for the printing up front. So whatever the unit cost is for that, um, you know, a small author has to advance that money, which might be a few thousand dollars, but it's still significant funds for an author. Um, on demand gives you the ability to set up on a relatively, um, look, sometimes there's no setup fee, other times it's affordable to set up a copy for being, uh, produced on demand. And then when somebody orders it, it's both printed and so you get charged a fee for it, but it's also simultaneously sold. So you get revenue that is associated with the, the book. You don't take is far less risk. You do give up margin, obviously, for producing the book on demand. But it's uh, it's an opportunity for smaller uh, and independent publishers to get a book out uh, without having to spend a lot of money up front to both create and store it. Now, Brian O'Leary, throughout this interview, you've used the word metadata several times. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Yeah, metadata is, is kind of our coin of the realm. Sorry about that. The metadata is essentially data about a book. So it comes in three buckets. Uh, the first is bibliographic metadata. So things that readers would be familiar with. Uh, what is the title of a book? Who is the author? In some cases, things like what is the ISBN? Because that's an important way for information about a book to be uh, singularly identified. 
Uh, other other information is is commerce related. So, what's the price? Uh, where? Um, what are the terms of sale, et cetera? Those are quasi uh, consumer, but also sometimes for the trade. And then there's specific supply chain data. So, what's the weight of the book? What are its dimensions? How many books appear in a carton? Um, those uh, those are important to uh, retailers and and even if they're online retailers because they, they both order and store the books in specific ways. Um, and then how that information is communicated, for example, what's the label on the carton look like and how, how do you find it? You kind of forget in the book business that there are two and a half billion, with a B, uh, units uh, produced every year in the US, United States market. And that's something in the range of 200 million cartons of books. So you make sure you want to make sure you have a good label on every one of those cartons because otherwise you're not going to find that book very easily. Well, you say two and a half billion are produced. Can you tell us how many books are sold every year in the United States? Yeah, I'd say I'd actually say that the the, the two and a half billion is the number of books that's sold. Um, that's kind of the number that comes out of NPT Bookscan, which is now Circana. Um, the uh, the number that's produced kind of varies by the type of book publishing, um, but we we think that returns are probably in the range of twenty percent or less. So you might see the total number of printing printed units, not necessarily printed in the United States, but total printed units are somewhere between between two and a half and three billion um, units a year. So perhaps maybe five hundred million a year returned. Is that what you're saying? It could be that high. Uh, I, uh, one of the things that led you to invite me to come to the show today was my article, and, and it's that's data that we don't really have a good hold on. Individual publishers know what their exposure is, but we don't know as an industry. And I think that it's going to become increasingly important to know those kinds of things, in part because it helps with efficiency, but also when you think about sustainability of the book business, if your return rate is is 20% or, or even 10%, you're talking hundreds of millions of units across the United States in, in a given year. I think for, for as we become consistently more concerned about carbon, carbon footprint, and sustainability overall, um, those are things that we want to get our arms around to be able to clearly articulate what our exposure is and take steps to try and mitigate it where we can. So, Brian O'Leary, what is the ISBN cataloging system? Sure. So it's a it's an international standard. Uh, it's short for uh, International Standard Book Number. Uh, it goes back about uh, forty years, and it was uh, first a ten digit ISBN, and now a thirteen digit ISBN. Um, like all, almost all products have some sort of identifier, and not just books. But this is a set of identifiers specific to the book space. Uh, so these numbers, which begin in the United States with either 978 or 979, are unique to the book publishing space in the U.S. market. No other identifiers start with that. And it's a way to uniquely identify a particular instance of a book. So uh, a physical book will have one uh, ISBN. The same book in digital form will have a digit, di- different ISBN. Uh, even though it's the same book, it's a different uh, commercial entity. Uh, it's sold differently. It's probably priced differently, if not, uh, um, if, if not uh, entirely differently. And so each version of the book gets a unique ISBN. It helps anyone in the supply chain, publishers, uh, as well as retailers, know which version of the book this is, uh, what, what its price will be, uh, any particular physical or digital 
uh, aspects of it, tying back to the metadata that I talked about a moment ago. And it also uh, helps with reporting so that when you when you find out that Michelle Obama sold 13 million copies of her book, it's through the ISBN that you know that. Brian O'Leary, how did you become, in your own words, the plumber for the book industry? <laughs> well, uh, sometimes I think it's a, a, 40 years ago, I came out of business school and I wanted to work in publishing. And I took a job uh, at what was then Time Inc. Uh, and I, in production, I, I thought at the time I didn't, I hadn't worked in publishing and I, I really wanted to know how it worked. And I thought the best place to do that was from the back end of the elephant. Um, and I, I think uh, it kind of got in my blood, uh, both the ink on paper. I spent three years in a printing plant in Singapore for time and then uh, came back and worked in, in New York uh, for another 10 years. But it was, uh, uh, kind of that experience that said, you know, how things work is kind of core to what really motivates me in my job. Um, and I, I did that both as a, um, in magazine publishing, book publishing, and as a consultant for several years before joining BISG in 2016. So it's been almost seven years now that I've been trying to solve problems that affect two or more parts of the business. Brian O'Leary is the executive director of the Book Industry Study Group. We appreciate your time on Book TV. Glad to be here. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us for About Books, a program and podcast produced by C-SPAN's Book TV. Now, a reminder that you can watch all of our Book TV programming anytime online at booktv.org. <laughs>